From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, bromonidine and neuroprotection. The aim of the study was to have the, the two agents that had the same intraocular pressure lowering, but one of them had another property, and the other property is neuroprotection. First this. It wasn't always like this. Before the time of podcasts, physicians had a much more difficult time staying abreast of their fields. Then, in February of 2005, a plucky new podcast, the first for physicians, was released into the wild. That first episode of As Seen From Here was downloaded by absolutely no one because almost no one had ever heard of a podcast. But the tenacious podcast could not be kept down. Soon, ophthalmologists trickled and then streamed in. And then the plucky little podcast wasn't so little anymore. And it measured uploads not in megabytes, but in terabytes. And downloads not in hundreds, but recorded 10,000 downloads in 103 countries every month. But we really have only one listener we care about. You. This podcast is just for you. Keep it to yourself if you choose. But won't you share it with a friend? And then you and your friend can share a scene from here's sixth birthday with me. How do we measure the efficacy of a glaucoma medication? We speak about a medication's ability to reduce intraocular pressure, but of course we know that this is only a surrogate for a medication's ability to prevent visual field loss. Sometimes, as in Ted Krupen's paper, the assumption that reduction of intraocular pressure and field retention are equivalent is challenged. In fact, Dr. Krupen's work makes clear that this assumption is simplistic and that two medications can produce the same intraocular pressure reduction and yet have very different effects on preservation of visual field. Dr. Krupen begins our conversation with disclosures. The low-pressure glaucoma treatment study was supported by grants to the low-pressure study group from Allergan, from the Chicago Center for Vision Research in Chicago, the research to prevent blindness. The medications were provided by Allergan, and the funding organizations had no role in the design, conduct of the study, interpretation of the data, or preparation review of the manuscript. A lot of the uh, of the uh, logist investigators re, uh, received support uh, from all of the uh, companies, from Alcon, Allergan, Merck, and Pfizer. Ted, let me start out with a nomenclature question. Is there any difference between low-pressure glaucoma and normal tension glaucoma? 
let's look at and and consider some different terminology. The use of the term normal tension versus low pressure glaucoma. My preference is really to use uh, low, uh, the term low pressure glaucoma. Intraocular pressure is normal in a statistical meeting, but it's not in a pathologic sense. And the other is that I find it difficult to use the term normal when discussing glaucoma with these patients who are worried about going blind in spite of their pressure being in a normal range. And finally, the only tension is within the patient and the ophthalmologist who's faced with this frustrating and baffling clinical uh, problem. In one of our uh, LOGIT uh, uh, meetings, George Spaeth even said maybe we ought to use the term average pressure glaucoma. What is low-pressure glaucoma, and is it a single group or a conglomerate of pathologies? And on that same topic, is the natural course of low-pressure glaucoma different from that of high-pressure glaucoma? Well, the cause of glaucomas are, are, are very, uh, uh, they're, they're not one condition that we're dealing with, either being high-pressure glaucoma or low-pressure glaucoma. If you look at the rate of progression, uh, they're pretty much the same between the high-pressure and, and low-pressure and low-pressure glaucoma. Obviously, in the high-pressure glaucomas, there's going to be more uh, damage with with higher pressures that they're running, and so they're going to there'll be a a, a, a more uh, progression uh, the higher the pressure. But in both of the conditions, the only thing that the condition that the uh, clinician can modify is intraocular pressure, and so in all of them, we're really dealing with a slowly uh, progressive neurodegenerative loss of retinal ganglion cells. Are some of the low-pressure glaucoma patients simply patients with high-pressure glaucoma and very thin corneas? It's interesting. When I put this uh, the protocol together, we included uh, central corneal or, or uh, corneal thickness in 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 the protocol. Um, the and that. In our study of, of a little less than 200 patients, we there was no uh, uh, the, the central corneal th- uh, thickness was not very thin, and if anything, it was a normal distribution. So I don't and that uh, and we haven't looked at that data in uh, in the outcome, but in in our study, at least, the central corneal thickness was a normal uh, number. Ted, what are the proposed pathophysiologies of low-pressure glaucoma? There's something that is the same thing in, 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 in high-pressure glaucoma, except that the pressure is, is uh, a, uh, not the major issue, but there is death of the retinal ganglion cells. We have... There's a lot of different entities that can cause the retinal ganglion cells to die, and that was the main purpose of the study. The study was to have a group of patients that had that intraocular pressure was minimized, and so we're going to uh, 
damage from other than just intraocular pressure. But the current thinking is that for all low-pressure glaucoma patients, even those for whom the etiology may be something else, maybe vascular, that for all low-pressure glaucoma patients, it is still a therapeutic benefit to lower the intraocular pressure. Well, there's no question that there, there's a number of studies out there that have shown that, the only, that people who have low-pressure glaucoma do better by lowering pressure. That's why we uh, our major uh, way to halt the disease is by lowering intraocular pressure. Does therapy and diagnostic monitoring of low-pressure glaucoma differ from that of high-pressure glaucoma? No. I think it's the same way. You're still at the point of analyzing the, the relationship of the uh, optic nerve, the, uh, the visual fields, and measuring uh, retinal ganglion cells. Since these are patients starting out with nominally normal intraocular pressures, how are therapeutic intraocular pressure goals established in low-pressure glaucoma? You're still starting medication and lowering the pressure. And then at that stage, you are looking at, again, the visual field and the other parameters that we measure in all glaucoma patients. But do you have any a priori goals when you start a low-pressure glaucoma patient on therapy that you want to achieve X percent reduction from baseline? I don't look at the low-pressure patient the, the same way because there's a limit to how low you could get the intraocular pressure. And there's a lot of patients, you get the pressure way down, and they could, they could get down the, the 8, and they still progress. So there's something more than just intraocular pressure. Your study examined the relative efficacy of bromonidine and timolol in the management of low-pressure glaucoma. Did you have any reason to expect the efficacy of one to be different from the other? Yes. The, the, the start of the, of the study and, uh, was when Alphagan was uh, under investigation for lowering intraocular pressure and the knowledge that the, what the class of what uh, alpha-GAN is has sh- shown to have neuroprotective properties in a number of uh, glaucoma and, uh, and ophthalmology conditions. So the concept was to have two drugs that had similar intra- lowering of intraocular pressure, Timolol uh, alpha-GAN, and that the difference, if there was going to be any difference, it would be beyond intraocular pressure. It would be a, as a neuroprotective proper, uh, agent. Ted, can I get you to describe the design of your study? The design was uh, patients who had a history of low-pressure glaucoma and with, never had a pressure above 21, and patients had to have visual field damage in at least one eye. Um, patients were uh, taken, if they were on medications, the medications were stopped and they went through a, everybody went through a, uh, a modified uh, diurnal um, measurement of intraocular pressure. And again, the pressure had to be less than uh, 21. It's interesting, of all the patients we did, there was only one patient during the study who that ever had a pressure above 21 in the study. 
So there's only one patient who was stopped from the study because of a pressure uh, greater than 21. It was good knowledge that there was a higher rate of allergy with bromonamine. And because of that, I randomized uh, patients uh, in groups of seven, four to bromonidine, three to uh, Timolol. The medications were uh, changed into similar bottles with uh, randomization numbers on, on the uh, given to each uh, study site. And all this was done by an outside pharmacy. The reason that you randomized more patients to the bromonidine group was because you expected a higher dropout rate from that group because of allergies to bromonidine with the intention that by the end of the study, the two groups would be approximately equal in size. I agree. I agree. And, we, and that's what happened, by the way. Ted, what were your main outcome measures? And, and for the purpose of the study, what constituted visual field progression? Well, first of all, we... we 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 did yearly um, optic nerve photographs. The but the major outcomes of the study were visual field uh, um, analysis, and visual fields were the the primary measure of uh, visual field progression was the progressor software, and that was. All the, the visual fields were, were analyzed by, uh, at Deaver's Eye Institute. And that the, for, for a progressor, there had to be a, a significant slope change of three or more points that were confirmed on three, on, on three con- contiguous examinations. The points did not have to be con- contiguous, which is how we, Measure fields in 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 the office, and that the because of the of the same three or more uh, exams that had to be uh, confirmed, that the major t- the time that we can measure the first progression was month sixteen um, uh, on the progressor. We also included at the beginning the Humphrey glaucoma change probability maps uh, based on pattern uh, uh, deviation maps. And again, it had to be the same three or more locations that were confirmed on three consecutive examinations, and it didn't have to be contiguous points. The third was we we included a post hoc analysis that was uh, Done, uh, reported by Stuart Granger, one of our, uh, the person who was doing the visual fields and the author on this, uh, our paper. And the three emitting method, uh, for pointwise linear regression had to be con- confirmed by two further visits when emitting the, from the series, the, the visual field that caused progression. So we had three different methods. To, me- to measure visual fields. In fact, we even did Venn uh, analysis between the relationship between these three methods. Ted, what were your results? What were your findings? All three methods showed that there was significantly greater, and by the log rank, numbers of progressors in Timolol compared to bromonidine. 
for the progressor, it was uh, nine patients with bromonidine, 31 with Timolol. For the probability maps, it was eight for bromonidine, 35 for Timolol, and for the three emitting, it was five for bromonidine and 21 for Timolol. We also looked at, uh, our Stewart looked at positive slopes where the sensitivity was increasing uh, on three or more locations, uh, which is false positive rates. And there was uh, about six patients, uh, or uh, about eight patients in both groups that did it, and there was no, uh, that had uh, positive areas at other locations, which happens in looking at visual fields, but it was the same in both groups. Although intraocular pressure reduction was not an outcome measure, did the two groups differ in treated intraocular pressure? No, it was the same, and in, in, in we looked at it as far as the total groups, as far as the patients that progressed. In fact, the patients who progressed, there was a, a higher uh, intraocular pressure in the bromonidine group, and that patients who reached study end. So there's really no difference in intraocular pressures in the two in in the two groups, no matter how we looked, and that's what the aim of the of the study was was to have two agents that that and they both have an, a number of studies that have shown that there was a similar intraocular pressure reduction between the two drugs. Ted, let me set this up for you. If intraocular pressure reduction is the mainstay of therapy for low pressure glaucoma. And if both of the medications produced similar reduction, the same reduction in intraocular pressure, to what do you attribute the difference in visual field progression in the two groups? Again, the aim of the study was to have, the, as you said, the two agents that had the same intraocular pressure lowering, but one of them had another property, and the other property is neuroprotection, and that there's a number of uh, biologic, biological uh, um, studies that have shown different properties of bromonidine as far as having not intraocular pressure reduction, but neuroprotective properties. Ted, what were your intent to treat results? And please, although this sort of question comes up often uh, in, in the context of these podcasts, let me ask you to refresh the listeners' memories about what intent to treat means. Well, intent to treat is an analysis that is based on uh, initial treatment intent. So patients that were randomized to one medication, they are looked at during the whole study as um, as being on that medication. The And as randomized is the way they were uh, uh, analyzed. The problem, and it's done so that to avoid uh, crossover and dropout and, and taking account for that. The major problem we had, and so we did follow intent to treat analysis. The problem that we ran into is that we couldn't analyze visual fields until month 16. And so there was a lot of patients that d did not make it to month 16. Any anybody who made who made it to month 16 was analyzed was accounted as far as 
progression or no progression. Just to reiterate what you're saying, Ted, so the difference between the intent-to-treat data and the regular data, let's say, is, is that the regular data exclude those patients who have, for example, dropped out because they developed an intolerance to alpha-GAN, whereas the intent-to-treat patient uh, the the intent to treat data looks at all of the patients who were begun who were begun on the alphagan therapy, regardless of w- whether they subsequently dropped out or not. Yeah, you can't. even though obviously in the context of, of of a study, you don't always have data from patients who who subsequently dropped out, and that intent to treat is relevant to clinicians because when you start a patient on bromonidine or, or whatever therapy that you're, you're starting them on, you, you start them on that therapy, not knowing if they're going to subsequently not tolerate it or tolerate it. And you'd like to be able to reference some data um, that is, is relevant in that context when you're starting someone out when you don't know whether someone's going to tolerate therapy or not. At the beginning, we were following everybody um, uh, after, say, they had an allergy and they had to drop out. The problem we ran into was that patients were some patients at surgery, some people were on on more than than just one medication, and so it was at a point that we realized we were not going to get any useful data from those patients. Before we discuss intraocular pressure independent means by which the two therapies may differ, could bromonidine simply be better at controlling? diurnal fluctuations or nocturnal intraocular pressure or some other aspect of intraocular pressure that was simply not measured in the study? Well, obviously, we can't, if we didn't measure something, we can't do it. I can't uh, respond to it. But if you look at it, where everybody knows that Timolol is not that good at, 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 uh, during the night, well, it turns out bromonidine the same way. In in our paper, we we give all possible reasons for why there may be a difference, and you can't tell from our study. But the major difference in our study was the, the massive difference in in progression between the two treatments. And again, that is something that was analyzed uh, by uh, an out by uh, a person who had no idea what the patient was on, Timolol or Arbermonomy. If intraocular pressure control is not the root of the difference between the two groups, what intraocular pressure independent mechanisms may be at work? There's about eight different mechanisms that have been uh, responded uh, to with uh, bromonidine. And for a clinician, I don't think it makes any difference because we can't separate out the different mechanisms that have worked. But there's no question the uh, the class of of compounds that bromonidine are in have been shown to have neuroprotective properties in animal models uh, 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 by a, a number of mechanisms, and that's why the to do something as far as showing neuroprotection in a clinical stu- uh, study on patients is that the gold standard is a randomized clinical trial, and that's what we did. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ted, but it it seems to me that if a medication works in this context by means other than intraocular pressure reduction, that it's sort of branded with its catch-all term neuroprotection. In histopathological terms, what is neuroprotection? 
Does it simply mean that it makes the axons more tolerant to intraocular pressure elevations? Uh, no, it's working beyond pressure. <laughs> you could have neuroprotective pro uh, agents that keep the, the uh, retinal ganglion cells alive and still connected to the uh, uh, to the whole uh, uh, process of vi of vision that has nothing to do with intraocular pressure. The if you look at the Memantine study, the Memantine study that didn't uh, for a number of reasons uh, didn't show uh, uh, effect was an agent that has great neuroprotective properties that has nothing to do with intraocular pressure. So it's beyond, it's more than the intraocular pressure. It's beyond intraocular pressure. But what it's doing, it's keeping the retinal ganglion cells alive and connected to their uh, process. Not to harp on the subject, but the Memantine study didn't pan out. And that was a medication that was purely neuroprotective, that that had no effect on intraocular pressure. Yeah, but the study had uh, a lot of faults in the design. The person could have, they had patients that could have a pressure of five. You could, do, you could filter somebody during the study and they were still in the study. The, there's problems with the, the visual field analysis. So there was a lot of, I think personally that uh, memantine has uh, neuroprotective properties in glaucoma. And that I, at, at the end of the study, uh, I had s some patients who, uh, of my patients who were in the study, that definitely did better with uh, memantine uh, than with the placebo. My next few questions deal with the way that you've integrated this data into your own practice. When you have a patient with low-pressure glaucoma come into your own practice, how do you manage them? And and where do prostaglandins fit in? Well, first of all, the, the only thing that we could really modify, right, is is lowering intraocular pressure. And there's good evidence that you have to, that low-pressure glaucoma patients uh, uh, do better with lower pressure. There are some problems with the collaborative uh, uh, low-pressure glaucoma study, but I don't want to go, get into that during this discussion. I believe our results. I mean, we had, none of us were biased by what we thought was going to happen, and all of us as investigators were really surprised when the data, when we had the outcomes uh, pr presented to us. So I talked to a patient right now and talked to him about uh, alpha-GAN and um, that lower pressure, but still, ha but ha may have extra properties, and the extra properties we we think about is neuroprotection, and so I will start that patient on, on bubronity. For low-pressure glaucoma patients, should beta blockers only be prescribed if the patient cannot tolerate or does not achieve therapeutic goals with bromonidine? I don't know the answer to that. The, you can't look at the collaborative uh, uh, study because they did not use uh, Timolol at all. And uh, and they didn't use baronidine because it wasn't even available at the time. So um, I would if 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 I would not start 
a beta blocker in that person. If, if I wanted a low pressure and I didn't want to use alpha-GAN, I would use uh, a prostaglandin. Do you extrapolate anything from this study to your management of high-pressure glaucoma? Um, I think if there is a neuroprotective component that, at least in our study, was shown uh, in low-pressure glaucoma, that I think the neuroprotective part of bromonidine will also work in high-pressure glaucoma. So uh, it, uh, I, on a high-pressure glaucoma, I wouldn't start with bromonidine, but it would sure be something that I would consider uh, if we have the, the pressure down to a level and I see that they're still having progression on visual fields or, or a retinal nerve fiber layer that says this is beyond pressure and beyond pressure, the only agent we have right now, unless you want to use memantine in somebody, uh, is uh, alpha-gen. Ted Krupen, thank you so much. Okay, have a good weekend. Theodore Krupen is clinical professor of ophthalmology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. His paper, A Randomized Trial of Bromonidine versus Timolol in Preserving Visual Function, Results from the Low-Pressure Glaucoma Treatment Study, appears in the April 2011 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Krupen or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.